Welcome to Purdue Commercial AgCast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm Jim Minter, a professor in ag economics and director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture here at Purdue. And joining me today are Nathan Thompson, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Ag Economics, and Michael Langemeyer, who's a professor in the department, as well as the associate director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture. And today we're going to be reviewing the USDA World Ag Supply Demand Estimate updates. So I'll just kind of review those briefly. It was in some respects kind of a no news report, but the market took a little different reaction to that today. So we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But uh, if you look at the, the details, there was really no change in the U.S. corn balance sheet from USDA. They're still forecasting corn exports to total about 2.6 billion bushels still projecting the carryover from the 2020 crop into the 2021 crop year to be about 1.5 billion bushels. That's equal to just over 10% of usage, unchanged from last month. And they didn't change the marketing year average corn price forecast, still at $4.30 a bushel. On the soybean side, still forecasting soybean exports to total 2.25 billion bushels. That was a number people were paying close attention to and wondered if they were gonna raise it. They didn't, uh, they held it constant. That means the carryover is still projected to be 120 million bushels equal to about 2.6% of usage. So still below 3%. And the marketing year average soybean price is unchanged at 1115. Um, you know, if you dig a little bit deeper and look at the world supply demand estimates out there, there was a small increase in world corn ending stocks projected. They've got corn production on a worldwide basis up a little bit, 89 million bushels on a worldwide basis compared to their February forecast. Um, no change in production forecast for Brazil or Argentina. That was watched pretty closely by the trade. There was a lot of expectations that they might pull those numbers back. They did not do that. So that was kind of a negative from the trade's perspective. Um, if you look at China, China's total uh, corn imports from all sources, not just the U.S., but all sources still forecast to be about 945 million bushels. That's the same as it was back in the February report. And world corn ending stocks, they wind up bumping those up slightly to uh, by about 45 million bushels above where they were in February. On the soybean side, they raised Argentina's production forecast by 18 million bushels. That surprised most people. They raised Brazil's production forecast by 37 million bushels. Again, that surprised most people. Those were the, uh, some of the negatives out there in terms of looking at this report. Uh, they didn't change the China's uh, forecasted uh, soybean imports. That's still forecast on a worldwide basis at about 3.67 billion bushels. And when you go all the way to the bottom line of the world soybean ending stocks projected to be just barely above what they projected back in February, just a rise of about 14 million bushels compared to, to what they were in February. So, you know, let's take a little closer look at, at some of the key variables, uh, maybe underneath some of all this. So if you look at corn exports so far this marketing year to China um, versus exports to all destinations. That's what I've done in this chart. So the blue bars are uh, exports to all destinations. The red bar uh, is exports to China. And if you look at it, you know, soybean, or excuse me, corn exports up just over 80% this year compared to last year. And really on about on track with where they were back in the 2018 marketing year. Uh, the rise in exports this year compared to last year uh, accounts for not quite 60% of the increase in U.S. corn exports. And really the question going forward is, 
you know, what's China going to do? If you look at it historically, they've not historically been a buyer of U.S. corn. They've jumped into the market this year, and it's created a tremendous amount of uncertainty with respect to where they're headed for the rest of the marketing year. We're at the midpoint of the marketing year. So this, this data that I'm showing you is through the end of February, which is the, the midpoint of the corn marketing year. So the question is what's gonna happen this last half of the, of the corn marketing year. And it's, it's a wild card uh, given, what's, given that we have a lack of history of, of China buying corn from us. And of course it's all tied up with uh, really a couple of different things. One is what's going on with our hog herd. Um, and secondly, what's going on with their corn stocks. Uh, how, many, how much of their corn stocks in China are actually usable uh, versus those that have literally gone out of condition. So um, if you take another look, Ed, go to the next slide. If you look at total corn export shipments as a percent of the WASD forecast, uh, you know, that's kind of an interesting number to look at. And if you, you take a look at that, uh, I'm, I'm having a little trouble seeing that, truthfully, Ed. <laughs> uh, here we are. If you take a look at it, um, we're at 40% of the annual forecast from USDA. And if you think about it, compare that to recent years, that's about equal to the average of the last five years. Now, there's been some variability in that in those from a year-to-year -year basis. But, you know, if you look at total corn export shipments, and I know there's been some concern about whether or not we have enough time left to, to really hit the target uh, that USDA has for us. Um, at least relative to, to the average, it sounds like we're pretty much still on track. There's still some concerns about whether or not we can move that much corn for the rest of the marketing year. But uh, I guess from my perspective, it, it, we're still on track. Um, if you look at what's going on in the ethanol world, uh, that continues to be of a lot of interest. Uh, USDA, we've talked about this in the past, USDA may be being a little bit on the optimistic side with respect to the quantity of corn going into ethanol production. This chart looks at the percentage change in ethanol production on a weekly basis compared to the prior year. Uh, I started this chart, I think, going back in, in January of 2020. And of course, in January and February last year, we were above the prior year. And then when the pandemic hit, uh, ethanol production collapsed. Notice on the right-hand side, we had a pretty negative February. Um, I don't think that that necessarily is indicative, though, of, of what the future holds for ethanol production, because a lot of that reduction that took place in February, especially uh, the last half of the month, was heavily tied to the severe winter weather, which caused so many shutdowns around the nation. Um, and so really created some challenges for ethanol plants in terms of continuing to run because of the availability or lack of availability of natural gas to run some of those plants. So uh, the ethanol production numbers look very negative. If you look at the margins, which is, a, I think, the next slide, Ed, uh, if you look at the margins, they actually improved pretty dramatically in February. So the first part of the year, we were bouncing around negative part of the time, uh, having trouble covering variable cost of production in some of these ethanol plants uh, based on the Iowa State data, which is kind of a stylized average cost uh, ethanol plant. But those margins have improved pretty sharply here over the last few weeks. And... You know, going forward, if we see the pandemic ease, we see more travel take place, increased gasoline usage, et cetera, um, that perhaps bodes well for ethanol margins here over the next several months, although it's going to be a bit of a challenge given the strength that we're seeing in, in corn prices. So, um, 
USDA continues to have ethanol up a little bit. And then if you look out to the next marketing year, they're anticipating another increase in ethanol uh, usage of corn. Uh, so it's uh, it's going to be interesting. That's going to be a key variable, though, really, that, that those two usage categories, ethanol and exports, are really the two to keep an eye on going forward. So uh, with that, I think, Nathan, I think you're the next up here. Is that right? Yeah, so uh, just kind of thinking about some some implications from a marketing perspective uh, coming out of the report yesterday. You know, the first thing that I think is is useful to make maybe stop and take a minute to just think through a little bit is if you still have uh, some some remaining uh, twenty crop that you haven't marketed yet. You know, what what might be some strategies as it relates to you know when when you might want to sell that corn. And so a useful way to kind of just think about uh, corn that you have in storage is to just look at some uh, forward cash forward contract bids. And again, these bids are just from a, a local elevator here in central Indiana. <clears throat> and then compare those with some kind of just assume cost of storage numbers or what I call kind of an implied break even of what you would need to sell that stored corn for, uh, say, over the next two or three months. Uh, to cover those those costs. And so uh, the bottom line there on the chart, the gold bar or line is um, those uh, forward contract bids from, from a local elevator. The gray bar uh, or line is then kind of this implied break even for an on-farm storage scenario. So again, it's basically today's cash price, uh, which is uh, around $5.37, plus uh, a one cent per bushel per month on-farm storage cost and a 6% APR on opportunity costs. And so you can see that that kind of increases linear, linearly through kind of the rest of the uh, uh, storage season here. And so, you know, if you're going to forego that $5.37 cash bid uh, today, and you're storing on farm, again, based on our assumed cost structure, each farm will have their own uh, specific cost structure. So you kind of want to maybe pencil that out for your farm's storage costs and opportunity costs. But, you know, based on our numbers here, you know, you're looking at $5.48 if you're going to store out into July. That's what you would need to sell that corn for uh, in order to basically be equivalent to the $5.37 today based on, on those costs of storage. And then again, the final bar, the line, the top line there is uh, uh, the same kind of implied break even, but for a um, uh, commercial storage scenario. So again, four cent per bushel per month is my assumption there. You'd want to plug in whatever relevant number uh, for you, and you can see that that implied break even is, is even higher in that case. So again, if we look out into to June, you know, there's a, a five dollars and fifty seven cent. That's what you would need to sell that corn for to be equivalent today's uh, five dollar and thirty seven cent uh, bid. So again, that that exercise of just thinking through, you know, what current bids are today uh, and what you might need to sell that grain for in the future in order to just offset your storage costs. Uh, is a useful exercise to kind of work through for yourself as you think about, you know, if I'm holding on to this, what am I holding on for? What am I looking for here over the next uh, couple of months? Yeah, that's exactly what I like to think about, uh, Nathan, because it's it's easy to forget the fact that it does cost us to store the commodity, even at low interest rates, right? It's still not zero. And, and so you have to think about, you know, if you're holding on, what are you holding on for? What would you have to have two or three months from now, four months from now to equilibrate with what you could receive today? So I think that's a very useful exercise. So you maintain the crop basis tool on the Center for Commercial Agriculture's website. And there's some interesting stuff going on in the basis world. So let's take a look at that. 
Yeah, so I mean, you know, obviously our, our cash price is made up of the futures component and the basis component. So we really need to be paying attention to both. Uh, obviously, futures are getting a lot of attention with kind of, you know, the, the increase in prices that we've seen here over the last couple of months or so, going back to the, the end of last fall. Uh, but not only have we had strength in futures, we've had uh, strength in basis as well. Uh, and so the chart that we have here is corn basis in central Indiana. And it's tracked pretty well along um, with the historical average. So the chart we're looking at here, the blue line is the three-year historical average basis for central Indiana. The black line is what's happened kind of this year from September um, to now. In, in corn basis, again, the, the crop basis tool has uh, information for any crop reporting district in Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and, and Michigan. And so, uh, you know, a, a lot of other regions have, have had even stronger basis with the black line, that current year line even being maybe, you know, 10, 15 cents higher than the historical average. Um, but something I think that is, is probably most useful to think about here is thinking about, okay, well, uh, his, uh, typically the, the, one of the, the uses or the reason that we built the tool was to build these basis forecasts. So as you're thinking about marketing decisions, you need some sort of expectation of what you think basis is gonna be. And so, you know, we tracked pretty well along that blue line here for the beginning part of the marketing year. And, and so the question is, well, where, where is that going to go? How can we use the information in the tool uh, to forecast uh, basis, say, you know, in April or May of this year? And so if, if you look at what we have here, we can see some, some strength. But uh, what's probably um, more useful to do is to take the, the information of what we know about what's going on with the stock situation and look at some comparable years. And that's one of the things that was really important when we were building the tool was to kind of build it in this way that would allow us to um, compare to, to similar previous years. And so what I've done here is I went back to kind of the stocks to use numbers and I tried to pull out several years uh, that were similar to what we're seeing in terms of stocks to use for corn this year. And so those years were the 2010, 2011, 2012, and 2013 harvest years. Those are the last time that we were kind of in this 10% or lower stocks to use range. Uh, and I just averaged all of those together. And that's the blue line that you see here. And so again, you can see that uh, the 2021, uh, 2020, 2021 marketing year basis has been kind of following that, that blue line there of what had happened in, in, in the average of those previous uh, years. But it gives us a little better idea of maybe where we would expect basis to be going over the next several months. And again, the scale here can kind of um, uh, maybe hide some of the information in this chart. And so I added some, some, um, some, some markers there to give you an idea. So if we're currently at a basis of around zero, meaning that the cash price is basically equivalent to the futures price, you know, here over the next two, three months, uh, history would tell us that we could easily see basis increase another 25 cents uh, over that uh, range. And again, as you look even later out into the summer, we see even you know, bigger increases up, up over 50 cents. The one thing to keep in mind there is, you know, we talk a lot about some of the research we've done as it relates to the, the ability to forecast basis and the accuracy of those forecasts. Anytime we get out, you know, into those early summer months, so past May, it becomes very difficult to forecast basis. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot more variation in that forecast. But again, given what we know about kind of stocks this year, this would probably be a, a pretty good place to start building any sort of expectation of what you expect basis to be over the next couple of months. Yeah, so I think uh, it, two things really interesting about these basis charts. First of all, it's interesting that 
basis so far this marketing year has matched up pretty closely with kind of what I would call a normal seasonal pattern, right? The most recent three-year average. And then, you know, going forward, that's the big question mark. If you look at that uh, first basis chart you had, um, I had to go back one more chart there. There you go. If you look at that chart, it suggests that normally when you get into computing basis off of the May futures, you'd see the basis weaken substantially. And we've only got one observation against that right now, but neither one of us think that's going to happen this year, right? So that's that next basis chart suggests that in a year when you have really tight supplies or relatively tight supplies, as we've got here in the corn market this year, basis in the rest of the spring and into the summer is going to follow a different pattern. And I, the cool part about the basis tool is it lets you go in and pick off those years that you think might parallel uh, the current situation. And so that's that's pretty interesting. And really has some strong implications, right? So it is, it is a kind of a situation where um, I guess I'll ask the question, how comfortable do you feel forecasting basis here oh, the next couple of months versus maybe the really tail end of the marketing year? Because that's when it gets explosive is towards the end, right? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, you know, I think that uh, I'd obviously be a little more comfortable with anything closer in terms of the, the horizon that we're forecasting over to the next month or two months. It's obviously... Uh, you, you have pretty good information. As you get further and further out into those summer months, it just becomes so much harder uh, as you think about, you know, what's going to happen here in the next couple of months with uh, information on planning intentions, actually planning the crop, you know, is, is that a timely thing? What is the early weather for that new crop? And so, you know, basis can really get wild in one direction or the other, depending on, you know, how that information comes in and what we know about that new crop. And so, you know, over the next two or three months, uh, as you look, you know, maybe March, April, and May, I would feel pretty confident to say that we'll probably see some strength in, in corn basis here, and, and this chart here might be a good place to start. After that, it's much harder to say because we'll have a lot more information two or three months from now about the new crop that could influence that uh, basis uh, in one direction or the other, right? Yeah, and, if, and Ed, if you put that chart up again, you take a look at that chart, the tail end of that chart is interesting because you've projected the average there, but underneath that average is some some tremendous variability, right? There were some right. years that were much more positive than what you're showing on the average, and there were some that were obviously less than that. So it's really hard to forecast. So there could be a good payoff to hanging on to the end. Just if you choose to do that, recognize you've chosen a strategy that's pretty risky could have a good payoff, a very positive payoff, but given the risk factor, it's probably not something you want to devote very much of your, your marketing to, right? So keep that in mind. All right, so you've taken a look at ethanol basis as well. Yeah, so again, uh, this, this is really interesting uh, as it relates to some of the information you showed related to both uh, ethanol production levels and then the margins. But I think in particular, if you kind of relate what we have here to some of your margins, we see some interesting Kind of relationships. And so what we have here, this is just uh, average ethanol plant basis in the state of Indiana. So I, I took all the ethanol plants that I have access to, which I, I don't think is all of them, but is most of them. Uh, and I just averaged their basis bids together uh, and then looked at that over uh, a couple of different time frames. So the, the blue line that you see on the chart is just the average of 2015 to 2018. And my goal in that is to just kind of treat that as a little bit of a baseline. Uh, that's, that's kind of the typical pattern that we see in ethanol plant basis uh, in Indiana. Uh, I put 1819 then as the purple line and I kind of 
pulled that out of the average because of what happened um, in in kind of 18 and 19 with planning uh, planning issues in, in the spring of 2019, which uh, caused uh, basis to really explode there late in the marketing year, which you can see uh, reflected in that purple line. Uh, then obviously in 19 and 20, we, we picked up in the fall of 19 with that strong basis coming out of the, the uh, you know, planning issues that we had in, in uh, the spring of 19. But then in, in, in the spring of 20, we have uh, COVID hit. Uh, we have, you know, uh, problems with ethanol production. And you just see a drop in basis pretty significantly there as people weren't traveling as much and just the, the margins in those ethanol plants uh, weren't as good. And then the last line is the black line. So that's what's happening uh, this year. And what's interesting to look at in particular is it's, it's tracking pretty well along that uh, historical 15 to 18 average. But in, in recent weeks, we've really seen it kind of tick up and get closer to that 2015 to 2018 average. And that really uh, kind of coincides with uh, the, the margins that you showed, Jim, uh, on, on those ethanol plant margins chart, where you know, they've, they've been going up here the last couple of weeks, which would in turn allow those bids to get a little more competitive, uh, what we're seeing those ethanol plants uh, pay for corn, right? Uh, and so... I think that's a really interesting story. I think, you know, as we look forward, you know, you mentioned some of uh, USDA's forecasts of, of ethanol production this year and into next year. It'll be interesting to see how that unfolds as it relates to a lot of factors, including uh, not only uh, travel and, and COVID related issues, but then also the price of corn, like we just talked about. Uh, you know, there, there could be some, some really expensive corn as we get out into the summer. And, and is that gonna be a time when ethanol plants are really gonna wanna ramp up production? We'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think we were talking about this yesterday when we were kind of preparing for this this webinar. And one of the comments or one of the things that we talked about was the fact that we've really got a debate going on here with respect to the elasticity of demand for uh, these various uses, right? How inelastic is demand for corn going into an ethanol plant versus corn going into the export channel uh, versus corn going into livestock? And you know, the su supply situation isn't nearly as tight in corn as it is in soybeans, but it's it's still an interesting situation in terms of, particularly when you get out of the summer, if we have any kind of production problems showing up in this 21 crop, uh, it could get kind of interesting this summer in terms of those competing uses uh, and literally who's going to blink first, right, with respect to usage. So, um, so you'd look at some... Uh, if you're thinking about doing some pricing, you've looked, taken a look at the prices. And of course, we've had a, a negative reaction to the report, a little bit negativity yesterday, but definitely the today, right? Yeah. So the, you know, the, the, the reaction of the market to the, the report yesterday, especially today has been negative. Um, with that in mind though, I think it's important uh, to think about some potential new crop opportunities. We talked about this last month at, you know, I think, this really ties in well with, with some of the, the charts that Michael usually puts together looking at kind of projected uh, income uh, for the 2020 and the 2021 crop year, which kind of uses these sorts of uh, futures prices, obviously uh, adjusted for basis. And so when you see those charts, it really gets you thinking like, all right, those are really, you know, some, some favorable profit uh, opportunities. So should I be thinking about uh, making some decisions on some of that uh, 2021 crop? And so, over the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, new crop has really increased relatively uh, more than even the old crop futures for corn and soybeans. Now, again, we've, we've seen the negative reaction today, but even still, I just wanted to walk through a little bit of an example here, just, just to get people thinking a little bit. 
And so if you look at futures today uh, for December 21 corn, we're looking about $4.77. I used the crop basis tool to come up with a, uh, uh, an expected corn basis in the fall of 21, around 15 cents under, which would give you an expected uh, harvest price of, of about $4.62, right? And again, when you kind of trickle that through uh, the, the income statement and, and look at what that could mean for farm income, those are, those are very profitable levels, especially what we've seen here over the last three or four years. Um, that, could, that could translate to really uh, favorable uh, um, farm income. Now, obviously, you know, th there is still upside potential in the market. So I, I'm not sure that I would be saying, you know, go out and, and, and hedge everything that you've got uh, for the 21 crop. But if for a portion of your crop, you're wanting to think about locking in some of these profitable levels, you know, I, I certainly think it's something that we should be thinking about. Now, the, the question that that kind of brings up is something that we've spent some time thinking about, and that is the, the idea of, okay, well, if I want to do some pre-harvest marketing, should I uh, be selling into, say, the, the new crop December uh, contract, or should I uh, maybe uh, hedge kind of into a, in one of those more deferred contracts of, so say, for example, the July uh, 2022 contract if I was going to store that corn. And, and that so kind of reflects the fact that, you know, so many Indiana farmers and really throughout the Corn Belt have so much storage available. They want to take advantage of that storage. And the question is, how do you best get a, a positive return for those storage facilities, right? Exactly. And so, you know, uh, part of that return to storage is obviously it increases a basis, but then also uh, if we're using a hedging strategy, that headed, excuse me, hedging strategy then uh, that kind of spread between uh, futures contracts is also a part of that returns to storage. And so uh, what I have here, again, just quickly um, uh, to kind of to give some perspective is the spread between the new crop December and uh, the following uh, July corn contract. So for example, uh, out here on the right-hand side for 2021, we're looking at the, the difference between December 21 in July, 22 corn futures contracts. And I looked at that at two different kind of intervals uh, or two different points in time, right? So I have that for both March and that would be like today looking at the spread for uh, December 21 and July uh, 22. Uh, and then I also look at it in October. So again, that hasn't happened this year, but you could envision what is that spread gonna be uh, this October looking at the difference between July 21 or excuse me, December 21, July 22 corn futures. And so what you can see is when we look at this historically, uh, the spread between those two contracts today is likely narrower than it's gonna be in the fall. Typically we see those spreads widen as we move closer to expiration of that December contract. And so, you know, over the years, that, that uh, the widening of those two contracts differs, but it, it's anywhere between, you know, um, five and 15 cents per bushel, which uh, is is not anything to, to kind of uh, shy away from, right? That, that could make a big difference for some folks. Um, but the idea being that what we would, the conclusion we would make based on this chart is that we would typically wanna uh, head straight into uh, that December um, new crop corn futures contract and wait to roll that hedge forward uh, to a more deferred contract in the fall when those spreads were wider, right? That's that's kind of the implication here. So as, as people are thinking about some potential new crop opportunities, we would um, uh, recommend that, you know, we look kind of at that new crop December corn futures contract and wait uh, to roll that forward into a, a more deferred contract until those spreads widen. That's the typical pattern. It's not a guarantee 
But again, looking at the information in the chart, you can come up with a pretty good idea of that being a relatively consistent pattern. Yeah, and it gives you an opportunity to simply improve those storage returns for uh, those storage facilities that so many of us have, have put up over the last uh, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years. So, well, uh, so take a look then. Let's see, I think the next, uh, we're going to take a little switch here and start talking about soybeans. If you look at soybean exports, um, they're up dramatically, up 78% this year compared to last year. Um, if you look at exports, that's exports to all destinations. If you look at the rise in exports to China by itself, that accounts for not quite, but almost 100% of the increase in, in exports that have taken place. So obviously, if you start thinking about, you know, what's going to happen in the soybean market, it hinges very heavily on exports in general and, and in particular exports to China. Uh, which again is tied back, as we've said earlier, with respect to what's going on with their hog herd and um, the rebuilding of that herd and what's taking place. There's been a little bit of a resurgence with African swine fever recently, which has created some additional uncertainty. If you look at exports of soybeans so far, and this is different than the corn chart I presented earlier. Uh, if you look at cumulative weekly soybean exports through the end of February, which again is the halfway point in the marketing year, we've exported these are actually shipments now, not sales, shipments, 86% of what USDA is forecasting for the crop year. Um, you know, I, one of the question marks, I think one of the things that maybe surprised a few people on this, uh, the report yesterday was this expectation that maybe we'd see USDA bump up the export forecast based on the fact that we have moved such a large volume of, of soybeans so far. Now, admittedly, at this time of year, Normally, the exports switch to South America. Uh, what's taken place in South America this year, though, has delayed things a bit, right? So there were really two factors going on there. One was late planting in, in Brazil, in particular, in the fall, or our fall. And more recently, it's been wet weather that's delayed harvesting. So those two together have really kind of delayed that, that transition to Brazil being the dominant exporter. Still, at the halfway point, it seems likely to me that uh, we're going to see not only exports hit the USDA target, but certainly a good chance we could actually exceed those. And of course, if we do, that gets you into that situation of, well, who's going to blink because the carryover is projected to only be at 120 million bushels now. There's not a lot of wiggle room to increase exports uh, without seeing some impact on another usage category. And so, you know, the, the two usage categories obviously are crush and, and uh, exports. So it's a little bit of a tug of war there. But that's that's the reason for some optimism in the soybean market is this expectation that we're going to pull down the carryover even more than we already have. The negative response today, I think, was reflecting the fact that USDA chose not to bump that up. And so the question is, well, you know, is it going to happen? So I think that's that's the key variable going forward. So Nathan, you've uh, you've taken a look at the the basis situation in soybeans, and it's also interesting. Yeah. So again, um, we've had strong soybean basis throughout the the current marketing year, going back to you know September. And so to, again, we, we have different regions uh, that are represented in the crop basis tool. So you can go look in your specific kind of region, but anywhere between twenty and forty cent stronger than the two-year average. We tend to look at a two-year average for soybeans based on uh, some research that we've done, and we typically use that three-year average uh, for corn. But again, it doesn't make a huge difference um, what you use, but that's kind of our, our, our general rules of thumb that we use. And again, you can see in recent uh, weeks, we've seen kind of an uptick there 
in basis, uh, soybean basis here in central Indiana. Uh, and so again, as we think about kind of where we're going here over the next couple of months, again, as it relates to uh, the, the supply situation, on the next chart, I did kind of the same thing that I did for corn, which is uh, look at a, a similar year in terms of that stocks to use ratio. And so here, I just pulled out 2013 because it was, I think, the exact same. I think it's like right at 2.6% stocks to use, uh, which is about where we're at currently. You could add in some other years and kind of get some an, a, more of an average there. But here, I just pulled out that 2013, <coughs> excuse me, harvest year. And so you, again, you can see the blue line there is what happened in 2013, 2014, and the black line is what's currently going on. And so again, we've tracked pretty well, uh, but kind of our expectation is in, instead of having kind of basis uh, follow that, that more recent pattern, we would expect it to follow at least somewhat closer to the pattern of what we've seen in a year with, with a similar uh, supply situation. And again, it's, it's a little unfortunate that some of the scale uh, messes up uh, what you can take out of this chart. And so I added some kind of uh, points to zone in on in terms of uh, what those levels actually are. So again, if we're at a current soybean basis of, of right around zero, uh, meaning cash price is, is pretty much what the futures price is, you know, here over the next two, three months, we could easily see that go up, you know, based on, on what happened in 13 to, to 35 cents over uh, the futures price. Again, I have another kind of threshold as we get a little further out into July of 75 cents over. And then you can see out into August, we're looking at <clears throat> basis of $1.50 over futures. Uh, and again, we're not saying that that necessarily is going to happen. I think that there's potential given the stock situation, given strong export uh, demand, uh, that that could happen. Um, and so again, the one big caveat here is risk. And that is, as we look over a shorter time frame over the next couple of months, I would expect uh, strength in soybean basis to continue as you get a little further out and we think about, you know, what's going to happen with planting and new crop conditions. Um, again, that, that could become a little, that forecast could change based on that information. And so it gets a little harder to say for sure what's going to happen further out into the summer months, but these might be some things for people to at least uh, put into their minds as some potential targets or goals when we think about basis for soybeans here over the next couple of months. Yeah, and I think the key point there, Nathan, is over the next couple of months, you're relatively comfortable that we're probably going to follow that pattern pretty closely for that 2013 crop year. It's farther into the summer when the risk really starts to accelerate. And, uh, you know, the very, the numbers at the end, uh, you know, there's a, there's a small number of bushels that were changing hands at those kind of basis levels, right? I mean, supplies right. were very tight. You had some inelastic demand on the part of some users uh, and they had to pay up to, to get the beans, but uh, uh, that's, a, that's a risky kind of a thing. And so again, a little bit like corn, but maybe even more extreme than the corn side. Uh, you know, think about, if, if you're thinking about that as a strategy, recognize how risky it is and think about what percentage of your production or crop you might want to allocate to that. But uh, this is the kind of year when that kind of stuff can happen, right? So you've taken a look at uh, new crop futures a little bit like you did on corn. Yeah. So again, just, just to get people kind of thinking in this uh, mindset of, of maybe wanting to make some decisions on, on some, some of their 21 crop. <clears throat> and again, we, we've seen some, some pretty negative reaction today in particular on soybeans you know, down about a quarter from, from where they were yesterday. Uh, but nonetheless, I still think that these, these are levels that could be profitable for, definitely profitable for a lot of people. 
And so, uh, you know, if we look at November 21 soybean futures today, somewhere in that ballpark of 1230, 1233. Again, I use the crop basis tool to come up with a, a, an expected basis for the fall in central Indiana of about 30 under. Uh, and that puts us right around a cash price of, of $12 uh, or a little bit more uh, per bushel. And so again, you know, uh, as you kind of think about how that translates and, 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 and looks uh, from a net farm income uh, perspective, right, th that could definitely uh, be a price that led to some, some, uh, some very favorable net farm income opportunities for folks. Again, there's still upside potential here. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not necessarily recommending that people go all in here at this $12. I know there's a lot of people that are um, pretty, pretty bullish uh, on, on where these prices could go. But at the same time, there's a lot of volatility in the market right now and, and things could change. And so it may not hurt to at least be thinking about, you know, making some decisions on a portion of the crop to lock in, you know, some of that income potential. The other thing I'll say here is I don't have the same chart that I had for corn as it relates to uh, the change in those futures price spreads over the time. The same story applies, but uh, the, the current new crop uh, soybean futures market is, is inverted, meaning that that November uh, soybean futures contract is trading for a higher price than any of those more deferred contracts anyway. And so again, it would make no sense at all to, to hedge into those uh, more deferred contracts for next uh, year's uh, soybean futures. And so I didn't have, I didn't pull the chart in, but I just wanted to mention in case someone was curious, the same story typically applies in terms of that spread widening um, for, for uh, uh, the November and uh, our, the chart is in here. So it made it. So anyways, the story here, the same story applies. Uh, and so it's a little more volatile than what you saw in the corn market with some, some years with some big inversions here or there. Uh, but ultimately, um, you know, given the, the inversion that we currently see, which is that that red circle around that 2021 uh, year, meaning that right now, November 21 futures are trading for more than say July, 2022, there's no reason to, to look forward anyway, you'd be looking into that November contract. You know, Nathan, as you look at that chart, which I guess I forgot to turn off, but anyway, as you look at that <laughs> chart, um, it really does indicate that the futures market doesn't think we're going to leave the, relieve this uh, tight supply situation with the 21 crop. And that's, sure. I mean, that's a pretty clear indication of what the futures market thinks is going to happen. It's going to be a tight supply situation for the upcoming crop year as well. We'll talk about that a little bit more in, in just a bit. Um, so, Michael, you have taken a look at some updates with respect to rental rates and net returns to land, and uh, they look a little bit different than the projections you had just a month ago. Yeah, certainly the increase in fertilizer costs and fuel costs have, have dampened the potential net return for, for 2021, but they're still very strong, uh, again, comparable to 2020. Uh, there's a couple points I want to make regarding this slide. First of all, I used a, a corn price of, of uh uh, 455 and a soybean price of 1220. Uh, the reason why I mentioned that there's a lot of downside risk uh, with, with those prices that I used here, and so that emphasizes the importance of the marketing plan uh, that that uh, uh, Dr. Thompson, and Dr. Minnert were talking about. There's a lot to lose, uh, you know, in in the current situation, and so that's one of the point. One of the points I want to make: uh, the downside risk is important for both corn and soybeans. I took a look at the uh, the iFarm price distribution tool. Um, at the University of Illinois FarmDoc website, and it uses option prices to come up with a distribution of possible prices. Uh, there's a 25% chance that uh, December 21 futures price for corn could be below 390. That's the futures price, below 390. 
uh, there's a 25% chance that the uh, November 21 soybean price could be below 1090. Uh, and so once you once you account for basis on those, uh, we would be close to break even, perhaps a little higher than uh, break even for soybeans, but but below a lot of people's break even for corn. And so that just emphasizes the importance of the marketing plan. It also emphasizes the importance to to um, uh, to keep your coverage levels for crop insurance uh, similar to what they were in years past. There's just a lot lot to lose uh, with all the downside risk in the market. So, Michael, you've also taken a look at the cost, right? Yeah, I want one quick slide on on, on production costs. This 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 particular graph looks at production costs for all items uh, from USDA NAS. And what 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 I want to illustrate here is typically over the long period of time, the growth in and and prices paid uh, for all all production items for U.S. agriculture is very similar to the inflation rate. Uh, and and so we can see that. Uh, very similar to the inflation rate. That hasn't been the case the last five years. Uh, though inflation has been very, very small the last five years, we've had essentially no growth uh, in prices paid uh, You know, for, for the last five years. 21 is going to change that. Uh, there's certainly much more upward pressure on prices uh, in 21 so far. Uh, uh, feed is included in this, in this prices paid index. We don't need to talk about feed too much. Uh, but but certainly uh, fuel costs and fertilizer costs are contributing uh, to this higher uh, prices paid index uh, along with cash rent. Uh, and, and so we're seeing some upward pressure on, on prices paid in 21 uh, compared to the last several years. And Michael, you took a closer look at that when you, I think on the next slide with your budgets, right? So you've really had to revamp that a little bit with respect to especially these change in, in fertilizer prices. Yeah, corn, when I showed this a couple months ago, uh, there was not much difference between corn and soybeans for 21. Uh, with the increase in, in, in fuel costs, in particular the increase in, in fertilizer costs, uh, corn is not quite as competitive uh, as what it was a couple months ago. Uh, and, and But however, having said that, uh, you know, uh, you know we, given the strong uh, uh, soybean to corn ratio, uh, corn's hanging in there. I mean, currently the, the, the soybean to corn ratio is about 2.6 which is similar, similar to last year, uh, but even though that's relatively high compared to the long run average of 2.45, uh, it's still not quite as high as it, what it was in 16, 17, and 18, uh, where soybeans were even more profitable than corn. And so, and so I, I would like to take a little closer look at here how competitive soybeans are to continuous corn and rotation corn uh, to kind of flesh out uh, some of this comparison between the two crops uh, in, in anticipation of the acreage report. And so we'll start by looking at rotation soybeans and continuous corn. Uh, this is in, using Indiana uh, information. I'll talk about how this might uh, might be different for the Western Corn Belt compared to the Eastern Corn Belt. Uh, but let's use that $12 soybean price that uh, Dr. Thompson was talking about earlier. Uh, if we have a $12 soybean price based on our costs in our current budget, was updated just yesterday, uh, based on the yields that are that are presented on this on this uh, on this chart. Uh, we would need uh, corn prices of $5 or above. That's certainly possible, but that's not likely right now. That's not, that's certainly, you know, certainly uh, Nathan was talking about prices of 462. I was using 455 in my previous chart. And so that's quite a bit higher uh, than where the current prices are at. And so this suggests that continuous corn really is not that competitive uh, in the Eastern Corn Belt. Uh, I think continuous corn will still be uh, more competitive in the Western Corn Belt. However, uh, you know, given the fact that the soybean to corn ratio is relatively high, 
I think we're going to see less continuous corn uh, in Iowa uh, in particular, perhaps even Nebraska. If you go back to 16, 17, and 18, and look at the ratio of corn to soybeans in, in, in Nebraska, uh, in Iowa, they were much lower than what they were last year. And so I think we're going to see less continuous corn, even in the Western Corn Belt. Uh, the reason I'm talking about this, um, you know, the soybean acres have to come from someplace. Uh, you know, Indiana's been had uh, more than 50% soybean acres for the last five years. They're probably not going to come from the Eastern Corn Belt, uh, this, this anticipated increase in soybean acres. They're probably going to come uh, somewhat from the continuous corn. Uh, you know, uh, rather than continuous corn, we're going to see more rotation soybeans uh, and perhaps more soybeans in, in Minnesota, uh, North Dakota, and South Dakota. Looking at this, looking at uh, second-year soybeans versus rotation corn, this is a different story altogether. Uh, rotation corn has very similar profitability to second-year soybeans. And so in Indiana, um, I, I said the same thing last year, so I'm going to stick with it this year. We're looking at about 50% soybeans, 50% corn. Uh, I don't see I don't see a strong enough signal here uh, to, to see a lot of second-year soybeans. Uh, you know, unlike the situation that we saw back in 17 and 18, uh, where the signal was to plant more second-year soybeans in Indiana, particularly the eastern part of Indiana. I wanted to show this chart because this 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 shows two things. You know, first of all, if we look at the let's focus on the average and high productivity soil here, and just give you give you some idea of what I'm talking about by different land productivity categories. Uh, the low productivity soil would have a, a corn yield of about 145 bushel. The average productivity a corn yield of 180 bushel. That's that's about the trend uh, for Indiana uh, right now. Uh, the high productivity would have a corn yield of, of 215. And so that's how kind of how I'm distinguishing between these categories. And, and what well, the first thing I wanted to show you is look how profitable uh, corn and soybeans both are uh, compared, compared to the overhead cost. When you see a red and blue bar above the green bar, that means we have economic profit, that we're covering all costs plus having uh, some economic profit or some residual left after we paid all cash and opportunity costs. And so that goes back to the fact uh, that, that, we're, that we're seeing some, you know, seeing with the strong prices, we're seeing some, uh, you know, large potential margins and, and goes back to the, I emphasize again, marketing plan and crop insurance. That's certainly the case with higher productivity soil. It's also the case with average productivity soil. And probably since the first time in five years, uh, it's the case for soybeans on low productivity soil. Corn's not quite there yet. Uh, and so, and so, this is certainly a different picture uh, than we've seen the last several years. And so, that that's one of the things I wanted to show with this chart. The other thing is, if you compare the red and blue bar uh, across these different land productivity, it's very obvious that corn is more competitive on high productivity soil. Um, that's typically the case. And so, as you go into into uh, the northern two thirds of Illinois, as you go into Iowa, corn is going to be relatively more competitive than it is on the average productivity of soil in Indiana. Uh, if you look at the average productivity soil, soybeans are, are, are obviously uh, much more dominant uh, compared, to the, uh, compared to soybeans in the high productivity soil, and that's also the case in the low productivity soil. And so as you go to the low, the low and average productivity soil, soybeans are even more competitive than they are on the high productivity soil. But having said that, Michael, you still expect to see the biggest increase in soybean acres to show up in that Western Corn Belt, even yes. though you do have some of the that, higher 
And that's because I don't think continuous corn is going to be as competitive as has been uh, the last two or three years. And before we, uh, Ed, if you want to bring that slide back up again for just a second, before we go on, uh, it's always useful to remind our viewers what your definition is of contribution margin. I should have done that, Jim. Thanks for the reminder. Uh, essentially, the contribution margin is return over variable costs. And so let's talk about the costs that are excluded. Uh, uh, the costs that are excluded in the contribution margin, they're including the overhead costs, the green bar, uh, is uh, is land ownership costs and land rental charge. Uh, so, you know, so a, 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 a ownership cost uh, of, for those that own the ground and, a, and rental charge for those that rent it. And so, uh, using opportunity costs on land. It's also hired and operator labor charge and then machinery ownership. And so the reason we call it contribution margins, it's the dollars available that you can contribute to cover those overhead co costs. Yes. And not every year can you cover those, right? I mean, that's that's the the, the problem that we face sometimes in agriculture. We yeah, in the long run, it, we, we do cover those costs, obviously. that That's... Uh, we, things equilibrate uh, over the long run, but certainly uh, when you look at uh, 2014 to 2019, we struggled mightily uh, to cover some of those overhead costs, and, and we didn't in a lot of cases. And 2020 and 2021 has been a breath of fresh air, if you will, uh, we yeah. to cover those overhead costs. It's really given people an opportunity to rebuild their working capital and start making some investments uh, that, that perhaps they postponed. So. So let's take a look at what's going on with uh, acreage because Michael, you mentioned earlier that, you know, we've got the acreage, the planning intentions report coming out at the end of this month on March 31st. And this year, it's always a big event because uh, it's always important, but this year, perhaps even more than normal, uh, lots of questions as to what's going to happen with corn acreage and soybean acreage. And so I've taken uh, the history here of corn planted acreage going back to 2005 and just plotted it with a projection for the 2021 crop year. And I'm using the numbers that USDA released at their Ag Outlook form here about three weeks ago. Uh, so USDA, their first pass, suggested that they thought we might see about 92 million acres of corn planted this year versus 91 million acres last year. And Ed, if you take a look at the next one on the soybean side, that's where the uncertainty is really, uh, it, expecting a dramatic increase in soybean acreage. So the forecast is 83 last year, 90 million acres this year. So where is that 7 million acres gonna come from? Well, Michael, you suggested a big chunk of that's probably gonna show up in the Western Corn Belt and maybe to some extent that uh, the Northern Corn Belt as well. With a, I would argue probably a lesser contribution coming from the Eastern Corn Belt, not zero, but uh, we, I think we will pick up some soybean acreage in, in the Eastern Corn Belt, but not the percentage change won't be as large. So let's just assume that those acreage numbers materialize. That's kind of a leap of faith, but I think it's useful to start off that way. And, and Ed, if you want to go to the next slide. Oh, yeah. So if you look at it on a combined basis, corn, soybeans, and wheat, about 10 million more acres planted uh, this year, potentially, uh, compared to uh, uh, where we were last year. And if you go back a couple of years, well, of course, when we had the preve pre uh, prevented planting, uh, almost 20 million acres. And really puts uh, that combined acreage of those three major crops back to where we were in that 13, 14, 15 time frame. So it's, it's really a bounce back. So let's kind of walk through the balance sheet because I think that's what people need to think about. What, you know, what, what's going to happen if we see that kind of acreage materialize both on the corn side and on the soybean side? 
So, you know, let's assume you have 92 million acres planted, a trend yield of, I think, 179.5 is what I used. I think that's pretty close to what USDA was using. Uh, they're forecasting uh, an increase in ethanol usage compared to their current year forecast of about 5% re reflecting a recovery from the pandemic. They've got a very small increase in exports projected. Um, using those assumptions, and there's, a, there's there are actually a couple of other assumptions built in underneath that as well, but using those assumptions, you still wind up with a carryover that's not too much different than what we got right now. You wind up with a carryover projected to be about 1.6 billion bushels, maybe a shade under that. Uh, we're a little over 1.5 right now, so uh, projected anyway. So that's a, a carryover between 10 and 11% of usage. So kind of put a, uh, a lid on that, I guess, thinking about that. Relatively large corn acreage, trend line yields, and really not much of anything happens to the supply situation relative to usage. We still re maintain in a I won't call this a real tight supply situation, but a relatively tight supply situation. We're going to be in the ballpark of, of that 10 to 11% of usage. And the threshold that, you know, I kind of use as maybe a thumb rule is, is when you're above and below 10%. Um, on the soybean side, with that big bump in acreage, up to 90 million acres, a trend yield of almost 51, a 50.8 is what I used in the, in the spreadsheet. Um, exports close to where we were this year. I think uh, USDA was projecting a small decrease in exports down to about 2.2 billion bushels. Uh, crush up slightly, but not much. Um, that gives you a carryover that's a little bit bigger than we are projecting right now for the 2020 crop, but not a lot. Uh, somewhere in that 140 to maybe 150 million bushel range, which is about 3% of usage. So that's up, I think, the current year we're projecting about 2.6% of usage. So a very tight supply situation. So I guess the reason I wanted to walk through this in advance of the acreage report or the planning intentions report is this idea that we could somehow work our way out of this tight supply situation in one year. And I think unless you get incredibly optimistic about yields, uh, which, you know, we could have, we could have above trend yields, but it, unless you get pretty optimistic about yields, um, we're going to have a relatively tight supply situation in this 2021 crop year as well, um, which is a little different than the mindset we might have coming out of a drought. And I guess that was the, the thing that the three of us have been talking about a little bit. So you think about some prior years when we have these tight supply situations, oftentimes they seem like they're attributable to a shortfall in production, which is often be a function of a drought. And in that environment, you start thinking about multi-year crop marketing strategies, uh, fairly aggressive forward pricing, et cetera. This situation is a little different and it's not one of those situations. And, th and the reason you do that is because following a drought that was you know, triggered a one-year shortfall in production, which gave you a tight supply situation, um, you expect a reversion to the average, a reversion to the mean and you expect it to happen fairly quickly and you want to take advantage of strong prices while they're available. This environment's a little different in the sense that it's not really driven, at least not entirely by a supply shortfall. It's, it's partially driven by that in the sense that we did have reductions in yield relative to what we were expecting earlier in the 2020 crop year. But nevertheless, it's, it's very heavily focused on the demand side. Now the wild card here on the demand side is a big chunk of this is coming from one country, China. 
So the the risk here is we don't know what China's going to do. And so if, if you think about it from a longer term standpoint, um, it's not just China. So I don't, I don't want to put too much emphasis on that, but that clearly they are the, the major driver of the, the strength and demand on a worldwide basis. And so the uncertainty there creates some risk and, and something you want to think about. But this is a little different than, you know, coming out of the 2012 drought and thinking you want to capitalize uh, on relatively strong prices that are only going to exist for a short time frame. This suggests we're going to see some some relatively strong prices uh, for at least one more crop year and perhaps longer than that. So with that, Michael, I think you wanted to maybe visit just a little bit about crop insurance because that crop insurance deadline is just a few days away, the 15th of March. Yes, before I do that, I wanted to make, make one comment re regarding the world soybean market. Uh, and, and Jim, you can uh, you can comment on my comment, if you will. But 80, just remember that 80% of the soybeans come from Brazil, United States, and Argentina. Uh, and so it's a little different situation than corn and particularly wheat where the, the supply is really concentrated. And I think all three of those countries are going to gear up uh, and try to produce as much, much soybeans as they possibly can. But I think we're looking at a short supply, not only in the U.S. for the next couple of years, probably worldwide, uh, as long as China continues to buy as much soybeans as they have uh, recently. That's the wild card. That's the wild card. Let's take a look at the crop insurance for a little bit here. We've got some things to say. Yeah, the, the first thing I wanted to mention is we, we had a crop insurance webinar on, on March 1. So if you want more detail, by all means, uh, uh, tune into that if you haven't already. Uh, but the revenue protection product is the workhorse in the Corn Belt and the Great Plains. Uh, it's been a really good product for a lot of producers. Uh, this is not the year to reduce your coverage level. And so I did want to say that one more time uh, before the deadline. I know the premiums are substantially higher particularly for the high coverage levels, but there's a lot at stake. Uh, we've talked about that throughout this webinar. There's a lot at stake. And so I encourage you not to reduce your coverage level on the revenue protection. Uh, one of the main reasons why we wanted to talk about crop insurance is this new product available this year, enhanced coverage option. I'm gonna talk about it a little bit and then I'll let Dr. Thompson and Dr. Minter take over uh, in terms of how this might fit into a marketing plan. But the enhanced coverage option allows you to extend your coverage uh, from the uh, selected level down to, to 86%. So if you had the 95% ECO product, uh, you'd extend your coverage from 95% down to 86%, uh, the point where SCO begins to offer coverage. Uh, and so you, and the, the, however, it's a very important to keep in mind that unlike the revenue protection product that's based on farm yields, the ECO is based on county yields. And so you are mixing farm and county yields there. And so uh, that's important to think about, uh, but it certainly does increase your, your coverage level, particularly for those where the, uh, the county and the farm yield are highly correlated or move, move together. Uh, there is a cost, of course, uh, to this, this product because, because premiums are, uh, because there's the premiums are, indemnity payments are gonna occur more frequently, premiums are relatively high uh, compared to the revenue protection product, but you are uh, getting quite a bit additional coverage here. Yeah, so it's an interesting product, and of course, this is the first year for it to be uh, publicly available in the, in the in a subsidized format. I think some private companies were offering something similar to this previously, but uh, now it's available from a, from our, uh, by way of RMA, so all the insurance companies can offer it. So it's really interesting if you think about one of the things about revenue insurance is that embedded in a revenue insurance product is a put option. Uh, we don't typically think of it that way, but it really is a put option because you've got that price 
in there from the February average for November futures or December futures in the case of corn. So that price is effectively the strike price of an option uh, embedded in there. Um, but it's, it's kind of tricky because you have yield in there as well. So it's not quite comparable to a put option at the CME or CBT. And so uh, that makes for kind of an interesting choice. So, so one of the things I thought we'd look at real quick here, Michael, was uh, remind us what the uh, projected prices are for the revenue products uh, coming out of the month of February. I think you were checking on the, those again. The uh, projected price for corn is four fifty-eight, and the projected price for soybeans is eleven eighty-seven. All right. So Nathan, you looked at those new crop hedges, and remind us again what those uh, hedge prices were if you hedged in today. So for corn, we were looking uh, about four sixty, and at for soybeans, we we're looking at twelve dollars. So corn, and uh, at least for today, um, if you hedge, would be very close to what the projected price is coming at, at out of the November. And on the soybean side, um, you could actually hedge a little higher than what the projected price is for coming out of crop insurance. So it's an interesting product because I know for some of our listeners and some of our viewers. Um, you know, not everybody trades futures. Not everybody uses options directly. Uh, if your your primary source of risk management is forward contracting, um, I don't know. All of a sudden, this might become a little more attractive in terms of a risk management tool. Do you agree with that, Nathan? Yeah, I think that if 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 there's a producer who, <laughs> for whatever reason, chooses not to participate in, in the future side of things. Um, this is an alternative that maybe is something they'd be more comfortable with. Now, at the end of the day, any tool that you're using, you got to evaluate, you know, the benefit. So what is the probability you think it's going to trigger a payment relative to the cost? And so Michael mentioned, you know, these are not cheap uh, add-ons to the traditional program. They, they have a cost and, and for those high levels of coverage, the cost can be quite high. But as you pencil out and think about, you know, what you think kind of that uh, the value of that product is and, and the probability that it's going to trigger a payment for you. How does that relate to the cost? Yeah. And I guess the, uh, the thing to think about is because these are county level, uh, they're, they are different than just extending your existing RP policy. And I think for a lot of people, maybe they're having a little trouble thinking about that maybe getting their arms around that idea. So the, the, the challenge here is what is the relationship between your farm yields and those county yields. And if your farm yields are highly correlated with your county's yields over time, and there's, you know, particularly as you, if you have a relatively large operation where you're doing, uh, you know, scattered around the county, for example, that might be the case, right? So your yields might be highly correlated. If that's the case, ex using the county-based product to extend your coverage, probably is pretty close to extending your your traditional RP policy. On the other hand, if you are uh, an operation that's uh, for whatever reason, your yields don't seem to be that highly correlated with the county level yields, um, then it's less clear as to what you're buying in terms of risk protection, I guess is how I would put that. Uh, so I'd be a little, little less inclined to, to think of this as something that would be very helpful. Um, Michael, have we missed something there? I just wanted to add one point on the ECO. I think this product is also attractive uh, to those that have very tight liquidity. Uh, if you have a tight working capital situation and you really can't afford uh, very much a loss in terms of net cash flow, this, even though the premium is relatively high, uh, this is something you should take a close look at. 
Yeah, so it's 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 the new kid on the block. It's going to take a while to get the handle on it, but uh, it's it's worth thinking about. That's how I'd put it for a lot of people. Uh, I don't know that we're we're not really making a blanket recommendation here, but at least uh, it's worth thinking about. So, uh, with that, I think that kind of wraps up today. Um, coming up in the future, we've got a couple of things. First of all, the planning intentions report from USDA will be released on Monday, March thirty-one. And I think what we'll do is we'll release a a podcast. Um, We'll record one that afternoon. The report, I think, comes out at noon. We'll have one, uh, should be up by early evening, by 5 or 5.30 in the evening, and you can listen to what our reaction is to the report. And then our next webinar on the corn and soybean outlook, we're tentatively scheduled for uh, Monday, April 12th. I think USDA releases the WASDA report on Friday before that. And so we'll uh, update all of our information and, you know, the, the WASDE report for April will obviously incorporate the acreage information from the planning intentions report, but it also provides some updated information with respect to the demand side and uh, uh, and the, the supply side. People are going to be very anxious to see what USDA has got to say about Brazil and Argentina on that April report. So we'll be able to update all that information. Details for both of these are available on our website, purdue.edu, commercial ag. And uh, with that, I want to thank my colleagues, Michael Legemeyer and uh, Nathan Thompson for joining us today. And on behalf of the Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Minert. Thanks for joining us. 